The Akkad and Coca Report, episode 81. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Welcome to this most recent episode of the Akkad and Coca Report. Today we have uh, the pleasure of having Jacob James Rich on. Jacob James Jacob uh, is a uh, Mr. Rich, sorry, is a policy analyst at Reason Foundation. His work primarily focuses on drug policy and pension reform. Um, he holds a master's degree in economics and mathematics from Eastern Michigan University. Prior to joining Reason, he conducted research for the Cato Institute, again focused on opioids and the drug war. The Reason Foundation, just a couple of words about them. They're a libertarian nonprofit organization whose stated goal is to promote choice, competition, and a dynamic market economy as the foundation for human dignity and progress. They were founded in 1978, and they're completely supported by voluntary contributions uh, from individuals, foundations, as well as the sale of uh, their uh, publications. So so uh, uh, we're here to talk about the opioid epidemic. There's no debate that uh, uh, the opioid epidemic is a massive problem, uh, causing thousands of deaths uh, a year. And the question comes down to why. Um, we, we, wanted to, we, we wanted to kind of focus the, the conversation around a lawsuit that, if not a turning point, was some sort of an inflection point in the, in the narrative of opioid and deaths that has taken hold. Um, essentially, uh, the state of Massachusetts uh, sued the company Purdue, which manufactures one of the uh, major opioids, I believe oxycodone, um, uh, and uh, they alleged a number of different things. And they alleged that they started out saying that thousands of patients are dying from opioids a year. They noted that Purdue got doctors and patients to use their drugs. Purdue misled them to take higher, more dangerous doses and, uh, and, and, and also deceived them to stay on drugs uh, longer than was safe. So they essentially laid the blame for the opioid, opioid epidemic um, for thousands of patients dying every year on um, a pharmaceutical company that was essentially manufacturing uh, this drug. Um, what do you have to say to that, Mr. Rich? <laughs> oh, well, gentlemen, it's an absolute pleasure being on your podcast. Uh, you know, there are many things to say about this. So let me think about where is best to start. The, the government's involvement and basically persecution of Purdue has been going on for a while. I mean, the, the New York Times and many other major outlets have been publishing about the negative effects of OxyContin on the community since about 2001. Um, around 2001, there was a state attorney in Kentucky, and he claimed that he saw about 59 deaths in the state that year, well, in the year prior, so 2000. So in the year prior, he said he um, witnessed 59 or heard about 59 deaths that were caused by OxyContin alone. And when we consider what's going on, we, we really need to make sure we're double checking everything. So that actually blew up the media. And if you look at the CDC's records of deaths from that year, you actually see that there was only 52 deaths of prescription opioids in general. So it's, this, some of the claims against Purdue are founded and Purdue should own up to them. But at many other times, um, the, the claims are just outright false. And it seems that the fact checkers, either at the court level 
or in the media really haven't been trying to focus on whether accusations may or may not be true. And with the unprecedented amount of opioid overdoses happening at the moment, they're just assuming anything bad that might be caused by a pharmaceutical company that could be profiting sure, from but- the distribution of opioids is um, responsible. So there, there, there are many things to say about the Massachusetts case in general. And if you guys have very specific questions, I'm definitely able to elaborate. Sure. So, I mean, the basic premise, though, is uh, the basic thesis of the, uh, is that um, the uh, opioid epidemic has been created by um, the manufacturers of these drugs. Is that, is that true or false? Yes, that's, that's the general consensus at the moment, is that around 1995, in the 90s in general, that um, pain was added to one of the vital signs. And after pain was vi- added to the vital signs, corporations that were producing pain medications started producing and distributing more pain medications than there was previously. And exposing patients to these pain medications caused people to become addicted. And when people became addicted, they were dying of prescription overdoses. And then the community, the consensus of the community is that since 2012, Um, we've been decreasing the amount of prescribing. And these people who were brought to addiction by the companies were substituting to the black market after prescribing went down. But they usually blame, the general consensus is to blame the start of addiction on doctors um, prescribing too many opioids, patients becoming addicted, and then these addicted patients seeking any sort of opioid to um, mask over their withdrawals or to find some sort of euphoric experience that they could not do without. Do you agree with that uh, consensus statement? I do not. And so why not? Well, the reason I don't is because when you look at the data, specifically from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, you have a consistent survey called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. And the reporting of addiction rates and abuse rates from that survey show that we've actually had incredibly consistent rates of addiction and consistent rates of drug use that is not marijuana since about 2002, since the questions have become standardized. And when you start thinking about what that might mean, that means that we might actually have a stable number of people who are addicted to opioids, but we have more deaths because the stable number of people who are addicted to opioids happen to be using drugs that are on average more dangerous. So after the reduction in prescribing, you have people using heroin and fentanyl instead. Now I will, this is multifaceted. The increase in prescribing, I think did lead to more opioid overdoses. And the reason of that is because if you have a consistent number of illicit drug users, non-marijuana illicit drug users, oftentimes they use multiple substances. And the type of substance they are using, they may be indifferent to as long as they can party and have a good time. And one thing that we notice when we see the absolute peak of prescribing of opioids around 2012 and the years leading up to 2012 is that use of drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine was actually starting to dip. So I think the increasing of prescribing did
did put more prescription grade drugs on the black market. And because those drugs were being used more often, you had more overdoses associated with them. But whether that was necessarily bad or good, I'm not quite sure, but the the phenomena of more drugs going onto the street and more prescription opioids going out, leading to more people being addicted to drugs in general, I think is false. And I think the data support that. Okay, so uh, you would say the data uh, suggests that because despite the fact that uh, prescriptions of opioids has gone down since uh, you're saying around 2012, is that correct? Yes. That the number of deaths has continued has continued to say stay persistent, meaning meaning a reduction in opioid prescriptions has not resulted in a reduction in the number of uh, 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 deaths from substance abuse. Is that well? Deaths from opioids have doubled since the reduction in prescribing. They actually the the rate at which so how- people started dying actually accelerated after the reduction in prescription. So explain so explain that how does how did that how would that how, how do you how do how does one explain that how does reducing uh, it certainly makes it seem like the prescription uh, you know the, the the prescriptions that doctors are writing um, that supposedly companies like Purdue are kind of you know incentivizing doctors to write or what have you or leading doctors to write it certainly seems to suggest that that's it's not that simple because if it was that simple then hey that reduction in prescriptions that started happening after 2012 would have result should have resulted in a you know fewer number of uh, deaths but that didn't happen so why why do you think that is well it kind of happened deaths associated with prescription grade opioids mm-hmm. that also and I'm, yeah, this caveat's important prescription opioid deaths that had no influence of heroin or fentanyl. So heroin and fentanyl wasn't found in the toxicologies. Yeah. Those have actually gone down about okay. 20%. But the percentage increase in fentanyl and heroin-related deaths is so massive that they basically overcame any sort of gain you were having from a de- decrease in prescription deaths. And that's exactly what's going on in kind of the iron law of prohibition. Right. right. The reduction in prescribing has not led to less people being addicted, but it has changed the types of drugs they're consuming. And on average, consuming heroin and fentanyl that you buy on the street is much more dangerous than consuming prescription grade drugs where you completely understand the potency and can measure what you're putting into your body and it's free of adulteration. So just the complete substitution from prescription level drugs to black market drugs is why death rates are so high. And it's actually kind of coupled with success of uh, seizing heroin at the border. Um, Heroin seizures were actually going up. And because of that, the black market innovated and they switched to using primarily fentanyl instead of heroin for to meet the demand of opioids after prescribing went down. So this is black market fentanyl, not prescription fentanyl. Yes. And that's, an incredible distinction to make because the prescription grade fentanyl that's used during surgeries, even prescribed, that fentanyl causes almost no overdoses. So that the going after legal fentanyl really isn't an issue. It's really just the black market produced fentanyl that's made in China, India, any sort of country that has um, 
weak government institutions and black markets can thrive and has some sort of a relationship with the United States and trading. Because now almost all drugs in general are coming in through the mail. They're not coming over the border. Mm. Some are coming in at ports of entries, but mail is by far the most common for any drug now to come in. And it's much easier to smuggle in a little baggie of fentanyl behind maybe a boombox speaker than sending in a brick of heroin. Really, really interesting. Just... Mich- yeah, Michelle. Uh, uh, yeah, what? Uh, yeah. yeah, Jacob, I have a question. It's it's um, troubled me for a long time, but I'm not you know immersed in the field the way you've studied it. When when a death is classified as a uh, prescription opioid related overdose, is it simply the fact that the, the 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 compound has been detected in the bloodstream? Uh, yeah. And and how do they parse out if there are other substances discovered in the bloodstream? How do they determine? Or, or put the blame on the prescription overdose uh, opioid as opposed to other compounds? Well, basically uh, what happens is that any drug that's found in the bloodstream is reported. And the way to think about a death and the death rates associated with drugs is that there was this many people who died of a drug overdose with this drug present in their bloodstream. But the majority okay. of the drugs present in the bloodstream probably did not, re- um, did not cause the overdose. For example, we've seen a massive increase in cocaine-related deaths, but the reason why cocaine-related deaths have gone up is not because of the cocaine. It's because cocaine is now being adulterated with fentanyl, and it's actually the fentanyl causing the deaths. Over 50% of the deaths associated with cocaine have traces of fentanyl in the blood as well, and we're pretty certain that those deaths were really caused by fentanyl instead of the cocaine. So the CDC does not distinguish which drug actually caused the overdose because it's so difficult to do so. So to keep the data consistent and as accurate as possible, they just say what is in the bloodstream and then you can do with those data what you please. So, uh, Jay, tell me um, what percentage, this is another important point uh, that I hope you can speak to, what percentage of patients overall who get prescriptions for pain medicines, what percentage of those people abuse them? Is it 50%, 75%? (laughs) Fifty percent, seventy-five percent. What what's the percentage? Um, is it much lower than that? <laughs> it's much, much, much lower than that. And this is why I wrote the piece about Massachusetts, their lawsuits, and how why I'm publishing other pieces about other attorneys general who are bringing cases against Purdue and opioid manufacturers, because almost every single study that looks at the probability of someone becoming addicted to opioids after being prescribed opioids show that the percentage chance of becoming addicted is less than 1%. um, The studies usually show that there's anywhere from any addiction rate from 0.2% to up to 0.6%, depending on which sample of patients you're looking at. Right, right. Uh, but b- even beyond beyond that uh, data that, that has existed for some time, honestly, in terms of what percentage of folks get existed, we do have a sense of what percentage of the total population uh, who receive pres- prescription pain relief actually go on to abuse them. And that number is actually very low, as you're saying. It's, it's around that, uh, you know, 1%. Basically, over 99% of patients who receive pres- prescriptions for pain relief uh, medications don't abuse them. Yeah, um, so uh, about 99% are completely fine. Right. So, uh, again, it points to the fact that it's a very small minority of patients um, that are, uh, that, that, that are you know, a, a, who end up getting prescription pain meds that end up having, having, uh, having an issue. Now, uh, you know, the other interesting piece that I'll tell you from, from, you know, from me, 
I, you know, when I was a resident, I uh, rotated at one of these fantastic cancer centers uh, called Fox Chase Cancer Center. It's located in the northeast of Philadelphia. Um, and one of the uh, lectures that stuck with me from that, uh, from my training there, that was in, must have been 2005 or something like that, um, was a lecture by um, a gentleman named Dr. Levy, who was a world-renowned, regarded as a world-renowned um, expert on, on pain management in cancer patients. And I remember him, I remember him saying that, um, you know, one of the major issues that we have, and again, this was in 2003, was that pain in cancer patients especially was not well um, treated. And he had written a New England Journal, um, uh, you know, the Bible of Medicine, a New England Journal review article on chronic pain. And he had, he had shown and dem- where he specifically talked about how, uh, how pain was massive, uh, pain was massively undertreated in chronic pain patients. And we needed to be much better about treating pain in our patients adequately and that we weren't doing a good enough job uh, at it. Um, you know, he talked about, I remember him specifically talking about, you know, one of the things that, that we do all the time that's wrong and that he immediately changes when he gets to see these patients is that uh, doctors will start patients on a certain dose of medicines, uh, pain medications, narcotics, and then leave them there. Um, he talked about the stigma that is associated on uh, using opioids in patients with chronic pain. Um, and so, and so, you know, his big push um, at the time, certainly, was that we are underprescribing, uh, uh, you know, pain medications to a group of patients that really, really need, need this. And, you know, again, this is a quaternary care type institution. So patients were had metastatic, you know, cancer to the bones. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, these patients were in tremendous amounts of, uh, of pain. And his, again, what he was seeing and what he was communicating to us as residents for us to understand was that, uh, you know, we needed to be um, empathetic to what they were going through, not stigmatize them, and and you know prescribe them you know pain and, and as much pain medications as they needed to take away their pain, and it's that's why when I read these when I read some of the lawsuit uh, um, claims that are made, you know Sackler, the company the Purdue sorry uh, and the Sackler family Purdue, uh, they're kind of reading the playbook of what Dr. Levy was teaching us and what was in academic journals at the time, um, in terms of you know, increasing doses of medicines as needed, you know, step therapy. If you if your pain's not controlled with X, Y, and Z, um, you know, every four hours, you go up on not only the short acting dose, but you go up on the long acting dose. So it's, it's really, really strange to me to see that that has now been criminalized. <laughs> well, is there any evidence that Purdue uh, or the pharmaceutical industry influenced people like Levy or, or the acad- academic establishment, which in the late 1990s, uh, or maybe the mid-1990s, started to push the uh, uh, more liberal use of uh, opioids? There definitely is evidence that the marketing campaign that Purdue put forward increased the distribution of at least OxyContin, the drug that they were prescribing, or I'm sorry, the, the drug that they were distributing. Right. And in general, that led to more opioids in general being distributed. But whether there was an influence on the academic community and the literature that came out at that time, whether there were incentives put in place that might make people a little less honest about what they were writing, I have not seen any of that. So, okay. and, and, and what's kind of come out 
around that time in the literature is incredibly similar to what's coming out right now. And this is a completely different uh, environment that's much more hostile towards the findings that first motivated the use and increase of use of opioids in general. So I, I haven't found anything, but I could, I stand to be corrected if some sort of, most, uh, most of the, that's a good question. Put forward. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, Michelle. And, and there are no disclosures that were, that, uh, that I recall that were, uh, listed in, you know, in the, in, in the review article that he wrote, though, I wonder if that was a time before financial disclosure. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure, but um, but certainly there were no financial disclosures on that review article. It's a, for a, it's a 1996 New England Journal uh, uh, review article on uh, chronic pain and its management. Um, but certainly most of the most of the rest most of the other um, uh, of the claims made against the pharmaceutical companies is that um, doctors who were high prescribers were visited more. They they received more compensation. They got more lunches, etc. Again, this is this is the highly you know the highly correlative stuff. It suggests that doctors were being led to prescribe more, but it, it very well could be that doctors that were high prescribers because of their patient population, because of what have you, uh, were simply visited more, they were targeted more. I mean, this is always a problem with these attempts that are made to suggest that uh, pharmaceutical companies are driving uh, are driving the pres- prescription of uh, drugs, whether they be narcotics or, or something else. Uh, Jacob, so we'll switch. We'll move to uh, what. What do you think the solution is? Do you feel like the solutions that have been forwarded so far, just yes, no, the solutions forwarded so far, have they uh, have they been are they ones that you think will be effective? Absolutely not. <laughs> so tell me why not. <laughs> well, so the, the the support for Patients and Communities Act that Trump recently signed in October was a plethora of bills, about fifty bills in general, to fight the opioid crisis. And when I read every single one of them, by the way, and what it looked like to me was Congress using an opportunity of panic to throw as much money at their friends as they could. But let me, not everything they did was bad. So let me talk about some of the things that they did that are good. So you previously had someone on your podcast who was talking about the increase for the patient cap for buprenorphine, right? So that's good. That came out of that bill. So if you had been prescribing, so I have to explain what this is. Medication-assisted treatment is what has been shown to be the most effective way to treat opioid use disorder. And that is a treatment where you actually use opioids to wean people off of other opioids. And the only opioids at the moment that you can legally do that with are methadone and buprenorphine. And buprenorphine is has been shown to be more effective than methadone. So it's the most important um, drug to have a regulatory apparatus. And at, and previously to that act, you would have a, you would go get a license, you go through a bunch of training, then you get a license. In the first year, you would be able to treat 30 patients. And then you could apply to treat 100 patients. And after that act was passed, after you now treat 100 patients successfully for a year, you can apply to treat about 275 patients. So I think that's a, an incredible move in the correct direction, but it's way too slow because even if every single person who has a license to prescribe buprenorphine can treat 275 patients, that's barely enough to account for every single person who suffers from opioid use disorder. And because of how slow 
it's going to be for the people who have 30 patients at the moment and the people who have 100 patients to slowly get up to the point to where they're going to be prescribing 275 patients, where you actually have a massive shortage at the moment that won't be addressed for at least about five years. So there's currently more people who need treatment for buprenorphine so- than exist than licenses that exist to treat these people. And what we should have done instead is what France did in the 90s, where we just removed the licensing requirement from buprenorphine in general and basically just let any doctor prescribe as much buprenorphine as they want to any amount of patients that they wanted. That's what France did, and France saw an 80% reduction in their opioid overdose rate within four years. So I think that's what we should have done instead. But, you know, when you move in the correct direction with policy, you should at least be kind of happy. Um, The rest of the bills... Oh, my goodness. I don't even know where to start. But for example, I mean, there's a bunch of money that's going to law enforcement for um, fentanyl protection kits. Basically, so uh, law enforcement aren't exposed to fentanyl when they go into a uh, into a drug house or any other environment that might be contaminated with fentanyl because there's so many cases of doctors. I'm sorry, not doctors, uh, police officers overdosing after touching a desk that might have a little fentanyl on it or maybe getting some fentanyl on their sleeve and brushing it and overdosing then. The only issue is that fentanyl is actually incredibly difficult to absorb through the skin. And it's likely that not a single officer has ever overdosed by touching fentanyl and that this is just all a big scare. That's what Harvard has concluded. Um, Multiple doctors that I've talked to have concluded that. And we're throwing billions of dollars to police departments to give them fentanyl protection kits, which will do absolutely nothing. And some of the other actions that have taken place are actually increasing the amount of funding going to prescription drug monitoring programs. And these are the programs that reduced the amount of prescribing in the first place. And if you're someone who thinks that the reduction in prescribing is actually why we have unprecedented overdoses, like I do, we see that as moving in the wrong direction. So other than increasing the cap for buprenorphine, I think it's just a bunch of wasted money that at best will do nothing and at worst might even cause more overdose. Right. So this is an incredibly important point that you're making that uh, that I'll emphasize again, that it, it does not appear that going after reductions in prescriptions of opioids um, is going to make a difference in terms of overall the overall death rate from substance abuse. It appears there's a there's a there's a maybe a pool of pool of folks that have that are addicted and that they are going to get their hand they want to get their hands on something, and certainly um, and it seems like if you if you're uh, uh, if if the regulations or police or you know the prescription drug monitoring program uh, what have you if they if they reduce you know prescription drugs they will get it in some other way and and, and as you're describing. That's something else that they may get, maybe far more lethal. So we may be shooting ourselves in the foot by many of these things. And like you, I've spoken to addiction doctors, and hopefully we'll we'll maybe get somebody um, uh, somebody on uh, one one of the addiction doctors to chat about this and uh, go into this in a little more detail about the fact that uh, you know one of the most effective ways of trying to deal with what is an addiction problem is to try to have infrastructure in place to deal with addiction. And in this particular, and and you're again describing nicely how. Um, the infrastructure is not in place, and the regulations, if anything, make it worse. We had Molly Rutherford on, who runs an addiction uh, uh, center in um, Kentucky, and she has, you know, she because of regulations, Medicaid patients cannot <laughs> come to her clinic 
to to get uh, you know to get the addiction therapy that they need. There was a study that was released by Michael Barnett from Harvard uh, last week, June the third or so, uh, describing you know describing how difficult it was for Medicaid patients to access physicians who can prescribe um, these therapies that are needed. So we are so our policy. I think you're right. Is seems to be completely wrong-headed in that it it looks to essentially push people into the black market. And by pushing people into the black market, we may end up with uh, some uh, uh, really bad, uh, uh, really bad outcomes. So, uh, and, you know, we talk a lot about the uh, 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 Purdue's accountability, right? Uh, the thing that really annoys me, uh, really gets my goat, and is that, you know, the, the, the folks that come up with these ridiculous regulations, um, you know, they're never held accountable. <laughs> you know, in, in another year or so, um, they'll have another, uh, you know, something else that, that politically seems to make sense and uh, they'll use an applause line um, to pass some type of legislation that will feed billions of dollars to some other group of folks. And in the end, you know, nothing seems to really uh, change on the ground. So it, it does, this does seem to be a place where um, over-regulation is really, really hurting things. Yeah, so- Absolutely. Yeah, Jacob, I have uh, maybe one last question before we, we let you go. Thank you very much for your, your comments. Um, I, I've heard the claim that um, the introduction or the push for prescription uh, opioids uh, may have opened up um, uh, markets that were previously untouched you know, by the, um, the illegal or the more dangerous uh, 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 drugs. Uh, for example, uh, you know, in rural areas, maybe... Uh, those places, uh, you know, were re- relatively in, in the 80s and 90s were relatively untouched by the uh, heroin and fentanyl market. And then people there got introduced to opioid addiction through the prescription um, um, drugs. And and now you have a pool of people who are addicted there. And, and as we, uh, you know, take out the prescription, then they switched over, they switch over to the uh, um, to the more dangerous uh, uh, black market drugs. Uh, do you have anything to, to say to that? Does that sound reasonable to you? Well, I would have to look at the county level information on addiction rates, which are not released by SAMHSA because they don't have sample sizes large enough to really account for, to have a, you know, you need a certain number of individuals participating in a survey because, before it is usable. Mm-hmm. And at the state level, it's usable, but at the county level, it's really not. So they don't really release the county level addiction rates. What I can say is that the addiction rates at the state level and the states that are considered more rural have had constant addiction to drugs in general. And the states that have had the highest opioid overdose rates aren't always, and actually tend not to be, the states that had higher prescribing of opioids. So right now, Alabama has the most opioids prescribed per capita, and that's actually been quite consistent over the last 20 years. And other states, other southern states, have had incredibly high opioid prescribing rates, and they are not the states that are having troubles with opioid overdose. The states that are having the most trouble with opioid overdoses are the states that first started reducing prescribing and reduced prescribing the most. Ohio has been one of the pioneers in reducing prescribing. And it's no coincidence that Ohio has the most opioid overdoses in the country. Although there are exceptions to what I just said. West Virginia 
um, had one of the highest prescribing of opioids in the country, and West Virginia currently has the highest opioid overdose rate. But in general, West Virginia is an outlier. Um, and yes, again, with increasing prescribing, I think more drugs do make more opioid prescription grade drugs make it into the black market and increased illicit use of those drugs will go up. But whether that actually led to more addiction in general, I think is incredibly questionable. Right. And I, as of right now, after looking at all the data, I say is not true. Wonderful. It is so complicated. It's so complicated to draw, you know, uh, clear uh, uh, cause and effect uh, conclusions from these epidemiological data. I mean, it's such a complex uh, topic. There's some, you know, there's a lot of nuance to it. And when things are aggregated, uh, you know, the way you've described, it's easy to draw the wrong conclusions or to draw quick conclusions and then move well, to the Well, luckily for us, a lot of the data we have are at the state level. And states tended to uh, implement their policies at different times. And you seem to see incredibly similar effects from these policies because the, the prescription drug monitoring programs, although they're implemented by the states, they're heavily federally funded and they are incredibly similar. So you actually have staggered implementation Mm -hmm. of different policies, and you can look at these policies that are very similar and look at what happens to the death rates after they're implemented in each state. So I think we're very lucky to have state-level data right. in looking at all these staggered causes and possible effects that follow. And right. in this case, showing yeah, it's that very no complicated, but in this case, the, right. the gun-ho approach, what we did immediately without really sitting down and trying to figure it out, those incredibly fast policy reactions that were put forward, I think were more damaging than great, helpful. Great, great last words uh, there. All right, sir. Well, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for uh, spending- uh, Tell us uh, where, where, where people can uh, follow you and, uh, and read you. Oh, yes. Well, if you go to Reason, um, my author name is uh, JJ Rich, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Jacob James Rich. So those, those are the two places right now that I associate with and would love any interaction from anyone who's following you guys. I love answering questions. <laughs> Alrighty, excellent. Thanks again. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com